We are in week two. We, did, we were here last week. I know some of us weren't because of the weather, and I kind of wish I wasn't here last week because of the weather too, but uh, we did it. So this is week two of our series called 2020, and we're talking about vision. So we're 2020 vision. It's the year 2020. It's like the perfect storm of sermon titles right now, all right? Uh, so it just fell into my lap. Uh, and so 2020, we're looking at vision. We're looking specifically at really two parts of that. First, we're going to sort of cast a vision for our church. Uh, What's the kind of church that first century aims to be? What are the qualities that we aim to exhibit in our community? What do we want to look like? How do we want to project ourselves? What values do we hold to? And then secondly, we're going to look at each week, uh, take that same sort of idea or core value for our church and then apply it to our personal lives. As followers of Jesus, we want to exhibit this same type of uh, habit or trait or quality in our lives as well. So we're looking at both aspects of this by looking at vision. And we are looking at vision uh, overall specifically, but to do that, we're looking at a very specific vision found in the Bible, and it's also known as Revelation. So we're looking at John's Revelation. It's the final book of the Bible, the last book of the Old Testament, and there's a lot to that book. We're not going to spend you know, our time in the last part of it. We're just looking at the first three chapters, really chapter two and chapter three. We looked at chapter one last week. Uh, look at Revelation 2 and 3. And so what this is at the beginning of John's revelation of sort of the end of the world and all these prophecies, first, he has some specific messages for seven different churches. And I've got this map here. I actually looked this up this week to give you an idea. Um, these places that we're talking about are real. They like really existed, and this shows you where they are. So the marker there is this little island Uh, off the coast, well, between Turkey and Greece, called Patmos. So John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the original 12, he writes this revelation. It's given to him, and he writes it down, records it. So he's exiled on this little island uh, around the age of 90 or so. Uh, They tried to martyr him. The Roman emperor tried to boil him alive in hot oil to kill him. He didn't die, and so instead he exiled him to this island to spend the rest of his days in isolation. So while he's there, he gets a, we talked about last week, he gets a visit from his old friend Jesus, who appears to him and shows him things that are yet to come, and before that gives him these messages to these seven churches, which are in this little box here. And then the next slide kind of zooms in a little bit and shows you exactly where these are. So this region, these seven churches, John actually had pastored each of these seven churches. Six of them he actually started, he planted them, and so they go in order, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven cities that he started, six of them started churches in. And then Ephesus, actually Paul started that church. Uh, we'll talk about that one in a couple, in a few weeks. Uh, rich history, the church in Ephesus. But today we're going to look at the church, the northernmost city on this list. The third one listed, we're going to start at number three because that just makes sense. Uh, but we are. Uh, we're going to start with the uh, church in the city of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum uh, actually has pretty rich historical significance in this region. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, it was its own sort of thing. It was its own city, its own, had its own leadership, its own king, all that sort of stuff. And then Alexander the Great actually conquered that area of the world, and so Pergamum became part of his empire while he was in power. And then, of course, after he dies, it's split into pieces because there's sort of this uh, uprising about, you know, with his kids and followers and generals about who's going to take over. And so 
so there's this split. And so then Pergamum sort of becomes its own thing again for a while. It's got its own king, its own leadership. And then, uh, really the final king of independent Pergamum, before his death, he sees the Roman Empire looming in their area. So he willingly says, hey, we'll become part of the Roman Empire. You can kind of fold us in. We don't want to be conquered. We don't want to start any trouble. We don't want to get caught in a war. We're going to willingly become part of the empire. And so partially because of its location in that northern region, and also sort of as a favor because you willingly gave yourselves to us, Pergamum for a few hundred years becomes a pretty major Roman city. Uh, and so when, when John starts this church here, it's already had two or th- 200 or so years of being a, a pretty major factor in the Roman Empire. It's not the largest city in the region, but it is significant uh, in, in its location. It's a major capital city in the region. So Jesus has a message for the church that John started years ago in this city that still, even though he's not there anymore, it's still in existence. It still has importance. But there's some issues that Jesus wants to talk with them about. And so as John gets this revelation of Jesus, from Jesus and of Jesus, he has these messages. And so we're going to look at this message that Jesus has for the church in Pergamum and see how we can uh, relate as a church uh, and also in our lives to this same message. So we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at verse number 12, the beginning of this message to the church in Pergamum. So Jesus says this, and John writes it down. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So it must be like Las Vegas. I don't know what's going on there, but anyway... But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you. This is Jesus talking. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, we're looking at this church in this northern region in the Roman Empire, the city of Pergamum. There's a lot to get through here, so I'm going to try again, like I say, not to talk too long or too fast. And if I do it right, we'll be okay. The game doesn't start till what, 2.05, so we're okay. We're, we're fine. We're good. No. So as we see here, uh, there are two main challenges that Jesus has in this message to this church in Pergamum. Two main challenges that he has for them. The first one is he's challenging, challenging them to not compromise. He's saying, be a church of no compromise. That's the first challenge. And you see here a couple of times, he talks about being the city of where Satan's throne is. And so what he's referencing here is, again, as a fairly major city in the Roman Empire, all these major cities, what they would have in common is they would have a temple built to worship Caesar, who is in charge of the Roman Empire. Because all of the Caesars were worshipped as a god. They saw themselves as a deity. They were worshipped as a deity. And so Pergamum had, on one of its highest points in the city, a temple built and dedicated to worshipping Caesar. 
So that's where he's referencing here Satan's throne. He's saying there's severe idol worship in this city. You're in kind of this difficult spot because you want to worship the one true God, but the law is to worship Caesar. What's interesting is there's even a phrase. Uh, you would usually greet one another with this phrase. It was sort of uh, required part of worship. You would say, Caesar is Lord. So then what the Christians would do is they believe Jesus was Lord. And so that's where that phrase really comes from, is from this Caesar is Lord idea. And they're like, nope, we're, we're going we're gonna to worship this guy who's really God. So Jesus is Lord. That's really where that was adopted from, was from this pagan uh, idol-worshiping culture. So he talks about Sat- the city of Satan's throne. Idol worship is big. There's also a secondary temple uh, to a, a god of healing, a Roman god of healing. Uh, Aslesius was his name. So there's, there's that couple different gods being worshipped here. And really in the Roman Empire, they're polytheistic. There's hundreds of gods in their pantheon that you can worship. And I even talk, was talking with Stephen this morning a little bit how, you know, the Roman Empire, they would let you worship Jesus as long as you also worship Caesar and some other gods in the area. So they're fine. And that's part of the problem here in this church that Jesus talked to them about. Some of this is creeping in even into the church. He's saying, don't compromise. He lists two major ways that they worship that are really sinful, and we'll get to that in just a second. But first, he mentions two names here that I want to reference just to make sure that we kind of see what is really going on in this message. So he mentions the name Balak and the name Balaam. So who are these people and what do they have to do with this letter? Well, it goes back to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22. Balak was the king of the nation of Moab. And so when Israel has escaped Egyptian bondage, they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. And so in Numbers 22, as they're wandering, they come to the edge of the land of Moab. So King Balak sees a million or so, nearly two million people who are traveling, and he gets a bit nervous. He doesn't know what their intentions are. He doesn't feel like getting into a fight with these people. And so what he does is he hires a man named Balaam. It's weird that their names are similar. Balak hires Balaam as a prophet to curse these people that are at his border, at his front door, Israel. So Balaam's kind of a weird, he's a weird guy. So there's not a lot about him, but he, he had quite an impact here. He's even mentioned in Revelation. So Balaam is hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And so what happens is, there's a very famous story, you may know this story, as Balaam is on his way to do this cursing, God's trying to get his attention. And so as he's on the road, he has an angel blocking the road. But Balaam does not see the angel in the middle of the road, but the donkey that he's riding does. And so the donkey stops in the middle of the road and will not go. And he's kicking him and he, you know, he beats him and he will not go. And he, he beats him two or three times. And so finally, the famous part of this story is the donkey talks to Balaam. He says, dude, why are you beating me? Now, just think about that for a second. Uh, that's going to be weird. That's going to be strange that this donkey starts talking to him, which, again, is sort of God's baseline. I always say if God can use a donkey, he can probably use somebody like me, too. All right. So the donkey says, why are, you, why are you striking me? And so it says all of a sudden, after he has this moment of what's going on, he looks back and now sees the angel blocking his way in the road. And, he, and the donkey said, hey, I saw the angel. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to cross him. That's why I stopped. 
And so then Balaam and this angel have this sort of dis- quick discussion, and he said, hey, I'm just, I'm just trying to get your attention. I want you to make sure that you do only what God tells you to do and only say what God tells you to say. So he's like, okay, fine. So then Balaam, who's been hired by a different king, uh, he gets there, and he starts to open his mouth to do this curse, and he instead does a prophecy of blessing on Israel. He's like, wait a second, wait, what happened? That's not, that doesn't sound right. And of course, Balak, the guy that hired him, that paid him probably a lot of money, is like, whoa, dude, what are you doing? I said, curse them, you bless them. He's like, let's try that again. So a second time, Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, and he again, what comes out is a blessing on Israel. And Balak's like, dude, I've had about enough of this. This is not what, this is not what I signed up for. This is not why I'm paying you. So then a third time, he tries to curse them, and all he can do is bless them. So John, why would Jesus reference these, these names? Why would he talk about, go back to you know, this story in Numbers 22 and 23 and 24? Well, why he does that is because when you read the beginning of Numbers 25, you read that right after Balaam has sort of this influence in this region, the very next thing that you read about Israel is that they are caught up in idol worship and sexual immorality. It's weird. So Jesus here, through John's revelation, makes the connection that Balaam has had some sort of influence even on God's people during this time and has led them astray in their true worship of God. So he's equating what's going on in this church in Pergamum now, which he's going to get to more in a second, to what happened in Numbers 22. He's saying this has happened before, it's happening again. That's what those two names reference is that story from the Old Testament. Basically, what he's saying in this challenge about not compromising is how they are living and worshiping a majority of them, they're saying, I can worship God and engage in whatever else I want. That's what they're saying. He's saying you cannot compromise on your faith. The two main forms of false worship that he lists are they are eating food sacrificed to idols and they are committing sexual immorality. Now, so this one is an inward act and one is an outward act. So he's getting the holistic view here, but these two things are important. So food sacrificed to idols in this culture doesn't really translate, doesn't mean a lot. But it's sort of the same thing that Israel did for years and years with their own sacrificial system. As a form of worship to God, as a form of gaining his favor, as a form of repenting of sin, worshiping him, they sacrificed animals. And then they, and then mainly the priests, would then consume the meat that was sacrificed. What's happening here is now that they're sacrificing to these other false idols. They're going to the temple where Caesar's worshipped, and they're sacrificing and then consuming this meat sacrificed to this false idol. So he's saying, no, you're corrupting what's inside of you because you're worshiping this guy who's not a god at all in this way of worship. And the second thing that he lists is this idea of sexual immorality. Now, in general, this may have been happening, but really specifically what we see here is its connection with worship. Because what you're going to see in a lot of these ancient cultures is at these temples, you're going to have temple prostitutes, who are going to live and work there. And as a form of worship, they will engage in these acts with visitors to come to worship. So a a person, a man would come to worship and that would be part of his worship is with this prostitute who works at this temple because they're going to gain favor and they're going to receive blessing from this deity if they engage in these acts. So Jesus through John is saying, hey, this is not like 
the worship that we've talked about before. Like, this is not acceptable. Like you, and what they're trying to do here is he's saying, you're trying to creep in this other part of the culture in with what you know is true worship. He's saying you, that's compromise. He's saying you can't, you can't do that. He's saying if you do, I will come myself and I will fight you is what Jesus says. He says, I will come down and I will fight you. Who's saying we can't let what seems culturally acceptable creep in to what we know it's when it's not acceptable. He said there is no room for compromise in the church. But then similarly, uh, the second the second challenge is is tied to this one. It's a little more subtle, but it's absolutely there. So the second challenge that's there is first no compromise, but then second is no condemnation. The second challenge is for this church to not be a church of condemnation. Again, challenge number one, stand for truth. Don't compromise. Don't waver. Don't do any of that. But how the church does that is the key. How they remain uncompromised is crucial. Again, verse 12, it describes Jesus as having a sharp two-edged sword. And then in verse 16, we just referenced it, Jesus says, I will come down and fight them with the sword of my mouth. So what we're seeing here is imagery being used. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it describes this same type of two-edged sword as the Bible, Scripture, truth. So Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what the Bible, what Scripture, what this truth that's been revealed from God has always done is it's a book that reads us as we read it. It it reveals the true nature of the human heart that is deceitfully wicked and needs salvation brought to it from someone outside of ourselves. It reveals uh, the parts of ourselves that need correcting, that need uplifting, that need some, again, that need salvation, regeneration. And so that's what Scripture's always done. So it's referencing this idea of this book called the Bible. And again, this is done intentionally for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it's obvious because he's talking about truth, so he's going to go to the Bible. But secondly, uh, there's a, a historical aspect of this city of Pergamum that's very important here to see the richness of this uh, imagery. So Pergamum had probably the second most famous library in ancient history. So the library at Pergamum had over 200,000 volumes in it. That's a lot of books. There's a lot of shelves in this library. Uh, And again, at this time, everything's done by hand. So think about how long it's taken to build this library to where it is at this point. Uh, It's gone for over 1,000 years. So what interest, there's an interesting story here about the library at Pergamum. So the most famous library in ancient history was in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So there's a story that the king of Pergamum, this is hundreds of years before John's writing this. So they're building up their library. They're gaining some clout. The king of Pergamum tries to recruit the librarian from Alexandria in Egypt to come work for him. So when the Pharaoh of Egypt hears about this recruitment, he actually imprisons his own librarian. 
so that he can't be recruited and leave. He wants to keep his library the best of the best. So I'm going to literally imprison a librarian so that he can't go work somewhere else. And they also, at this time, uh, most of the scrolls are written on papyrus, which comes from Egypt. So also sort of as a penalty for this recruiting, violation, you know, penalty on the play, flag on the play, uh, the Pharaoh says, hey, no more papyrus for you dudes. You're on your own. So no more books for you guys. So what happened from that, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? So since they're like, well, we have this impressive library. We want to keep making more books to keep building our stock. So what they do is this is actually, they sort of refine writing on animal skins. Out of necessity, they don't have any more papyrus. They can't make any sort of paper. So they perfect the art of writing on animal skins to keep their library going, to keep the scribes writing and making more volumes and more books for their library. So it's an interesting sort of thing here. And so when Jesus talks, uses this imagery to describe a book, it's because he's talking to a very specific audience in a very specific city that's known for their books, for their library. He's referencing the Bible. So again, the challenge is to not be a church that condemns. So the Bible here is used and described as a weapon, a sword. Twice in five verses, six verses, it's talked about as a weapon. But here is the challenge. Here's the challenge. Jesus can use the Bible as a weapon, but the church should not. That's the difference. He's holding the sword. The sword's coming from his mouth. He's not saying, here, church, use my sword to wipe people out, to condemn people. So the challenge with not uh, condemning, he's saying, do not weaponize truth. Don't weaponize scripture. So so it'll make more sense as we keep going. We combine these two in just a second. The challenge is to, um, again, the Bible is not a weapon for the church to use against the culture. What Jesus is saying, if you read it in this context, he's saying the, the Bible, the truth, is my weapon to use against the church if I need to, to whip the church into shape. Not so I can destroy culture, not so I can cut people down for their errors, their sins, their mistakes. And that you see that in Jesus' life. The main issue, that, and we'll talk about a couple of examples in a second, so I'm getting a little ahead of myself. That happens sometimes, okay? What you find is the people that Jesus was most harsh with in his earthly ministry were the religious people who were out of line who were condemning others, who were being judgmental, who were being hypocritical. He's very kind to sinners. He's very forgiving to sinners. He's very much interested in in their lives changing and improving. He's harsh. He uses the sword against his own that need it. So he says the same thing is true here. Don't weaponize truth. Don't use the Bible as a weapon. He's saying, that's my job. I haven't given that job to you, and I won't, so don't take it upon yourself to do that. So let's, let's then sort of combine these two ideas by looking at, at ourselves. What does this ancient message to this ancient city that doesn't, isn't even really there anymore, there's a different name for that city now, what does that, how does that affect our vision? As we talk about our vision for our church and our lives, how does this message change that or affect that, affect our vision and really, we have the same two challenges that I believe Jesus would issue to us as a church and as individual followers of him today. First, no compromise. So as a church, first century church will always stand for truth. 
It's part of our vision. It's part of who we are. We will always be, as long as I'm part of it, right, we're going to be Bible-based, okay? So we're not going to frame how we view things off of a different ideology or a different way of living or off of what culture thinks is relevant or true or accurate or what's fair. We're going to base what we do and who we are, what we teach, what we believe from the Bible. We will not compromise on that. Individually, the challenge is there for us as well to live our lives based on truth. Now, not what is your truth, Oprah, okay? Not that. Not, I don't want to speak my truth. You know what that is? That's garbage. I'm just telling you. It's just my truth is, unless it's grounded in ultimate truth, it's a lie. There's not, there's not like three options here. There's truth and there's untruth. And so if my truth doesn't align with what is truth in and of itself, it's probably not worth speaking, sharing, or living. So we want to be people, if we're Christ followers, man, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, what we do should be based on that and not anything else. Uh, and sometimes that does come off as offensive, but that's where we'll get to the condemnation thing in just a second. We want to base our life on scripture, on truth. We want to live a life of faith and obedience. And a question I thought of the last couple of weeks is, when it comes to no compromise, a question I think that is increasingly um, real is, are we willing to suffer for our faith? Because it is, it is even creeping into our own culture. Uh, there's a couple of uh, stats that, I, um, that were in a resource I looked at last week, uh, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination worldwide are against Christians. 80% of all acts of religious discrimination worldwide are against Christians. That's social discrimination, shunning. Uh, it's career discrimination. I won't hire you or promote you because I know that you're a Christian. Even legislative discrimination. There are laws that are being pushed for um, local, state, federal that are tr- trying to hamper the Christian worldview and way of life. It's true. It's, it's here. It's coming. It's creeping in. There was even a former, he, he's out of the race now, but one of the former Democratic nominees for president just a few months ago, made a public statement pressuring churches to change a view on certain social issues or he would withhold certain nonprofit funding from the government if he became president. It's coming. So the question is, will we continue to be a church of no compromise even if it comes to that? And then personally, it it affects us as well because 90%, the same resource, same source, 90% of all religious killings worldwide are against Christians. Now, that's not quite to our shores just yet, but the question still should linger. We should still have an answer to that question. Would, how, how firm are we in our belief system if that were to happen? Because it's happening by the thousands worldwide, other parts of the planet. Now, it may never get here. I don't know, but people have always said that. Um, so it's just something we have to consider. And I think about Daniel from the Old Testament, who was, you know, he was a faithful Jewish guy living in Israel. When Babylon takes over, they take the best, brightest, youngest, strongest people with them, basically to indoctrinate them to become Babylonians. And they see that Daniel has a lot of potential. He's very young, very bright, like he's the best of the best in his class, and we're going to take him, and he's going to become a great Babylonian leader. So as he's in there, uh, there, he doesn't compromise. So the first thing they do is they, they eat meat that he's not, as a Jew, supposed to eat. And he says, I'm not eating that. 
Like, I don't care. And they're like, you, you know, they're probably going to kill you for that. Like, just down the pig and we'll be fine. Like, it's bacon. It's delicious. You should try it. I don't care who your God is. You should eat it. It's amazing, you know. He's like, I don't care how. I know it smells so great. I'm just not going to do it. It's unclean for me. He's not going to do it. So he does what we call the Daniel fast. Now, it's, co- it's a cool fad now. But for him, it was like life and death. Right? Because he's going, to be, he's going to go through some physical education in like a few months' time. And he's only eating like fruits and vegetables. That's all that's there that's clean for him to eat. And even one of the Babylonian guards who becomes his friend says, Dan, like, dude, if you fail this physical exam, you're done. They're going to kill you. He's like, I, I'm not going to compromise. So guess what happens, though? God honors his faith. God honors his lack of compromise. And he's like the strongest, healthiest dude there when exam time comes. Then the stakes are raised even a little bit higher for him later on when some some people kind of get this clue, like he's going to worship his God no matter what. He's not going to compromise. So they trick the king into outlawing prayer. Only You can only pray to the king for like a 30-day period. Daniel's like, day one, I'm going to pray to God the same time I do every day. Like I'm not going to change my schedule. I'm not going to compromise. Even on pain of death, we're going to throw you in the lion's den. He still openly goes to his window and prays out loud. He's like, hey, guys, I know you're watching me. You know, I'm on hidden camera. I'm going to pray anyway. You can join me if you want. So then he breaks the law. He's thrown into the lion's den. But again, God comes through and spares his life. But he refused to compromise. So the question is, would we do the same? The second um, challenge is still for us as well, and that is no condemnation. The challenge here is to love others despite their flaws, despite their sin. And to love those outside of the faith who are openly sinful, willfully apart from God. Two examples quickly from Jesus' life to illustrate this. First is in John chapter 8. Um, he kind of was walking through town and he hears this commotion. And there's a woman that's thrown out of his house and a bunch of religious leader, you know, Pharisees that gather around her ready to stone her. And so they stop for a second and, they, and he's like, what's going on? And they say, well, this one was caught in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. And they say, what do you say about that, teacher, Jesus? What do you say about that? And so John writes this. So the same guy that wrote Revelation writes this account in John 8. So Jesus bent down and started just drawing, writing in the dirt. And we don't know what he wrote. I think he was like, you know, making an I'm with stupid sign toward the Pharisees or something. Like maybe, I don't know. Probably not because he's Jesus, not Stephen. Uh, But he's writing in the dirt. And he just looks up and says, any of you without sin, cast the first stone. And, of course, they drop their stones and walk away because they're not without sin. And so then he just keeps drawing the dirt for a while. It's maybe kind of an awkward moment. It's just him and this woman now. And, he, uh, and so he kind of looks around and says, hey, where'd all your accusers go? Don't, don't, didn't they condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So there's, there's where these two come together. Jesus did not compromise anything, but he also didn't condemn this sinful woman. It's possible to do both, which we'll talk about in a second. And then John chapter 4, again, John writes this. He was actually here for part of this conversation. John 4, um, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria. Uh, they come by this well and kind of stop. Jesus takes a rest. Uh, his dudes are going to go get some lunch and bring it back. While he's there, this woman comes and fills up water at the well. They have a simple conversation sort of about life, about worship. And he reveals to her that he knows she has a very sketchy relationship past. She's got a lot of skeletons in her closet. She is, she is not welcome in regular society. That's why she's by herself and not with a group of women. 
He knows she's an outcast socially because of her sexual past, her own sin, her own shortcomings, her own problems. But guess what? He doesn't condemn her at all. He engages her in a conversation and reveals himself to be really the man she's always looked for, so to speak. So then she runs back, not out of like fear. He made fun of me. He judged me. He pointed his finger. No, that's not why. She runs back to her neighborhood to tell people, guess who I just ran into at the well? You need to come find him and meet him. He will change your life. So Jesus had every opportunity to tear this woman apart to condemn her, say, you are sinful, I'm going to shun you, I shouldn't be talking to you, it's, I've got to think about my reputation, but he doesn't. He loves her, he shows grace to her, and that is what changed her life and changed her community, was Jesus was not willing to condemn. These two things are possible. So for us as a church, we want to show grace to our community. We want to be a place of forgiveness, and really a, a, a kind of a sort of a famous way to say it now, but so for us at first century, it's okay to not be okay, right? It's okay to not have your life figured out. It's okay to have baggage. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to have a ton of sin. That's what we're here for. That's why we're here. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. So yes, we want people with their flaws and their issues and their problems and their stress and their drama. Yes, bring them in. That's why we are here. So we can't do that. We can't accomplish that if we're in the art of condemning people for that stuff. It doesn't work that way. So we're here to be a a place full of grace. And then individually, here's how we can exhibit this idea of not condemning. And this is a thing that I've learned several years ago. Personally, I would rather be known for what I am for than known for what I'm against. And there's a difference. You'd say, well, there's no difference. No, there is. I want to promote what I'm for and not just protest what I'm against all the time. Because that comes off as condemning. It comes off sort of as I'm better or higher or no more and, you know, on a different level here. And that's not what we want to project as Christ followers. I want to be a person that exudes grace to people. Do they, do they deserve it? No. Do I want to give it to them? <laughs> no. Right? But that's the difference that Jesus makes in our lives and through our lives. That's how individually we can resist the temptation to condemn. And then as we close, we've got one more verse we're going to get through for just a second. Um, As we close, when we combine these two things, so when we don't um, compromise and when we don't condemn, that's what we would call consistency. Consistency. And you would say, it's easier said than done. If consistency were easy, then parenting would be a breeze, right? Because then I would have this same set of rules that I stick to all the time for, ev- for all my kids equally. And when, every time they don't add, you know, meet up to that standard, I have the same punishment every time. That never happens at our house. I don't know about you. Never happens. We were just talking to another parent yesterday at Jackson's basketball game about how hard it is to be consistent as parents. And I'm like, That's, I'm going to use that tomorrow. That's perfect because it's true. If consistency were easy, then I would never be late to anything. Because I would know to plan ahead, I'd know to look at, I'd be consistent in how I plan, how I project, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, Everything would just be perfect all the time if consistency were easy, but it's not. So we don't want to compromise or condemn consistently. It's not always easy. Because there's a temptation to think, well, if I don't condemn, then I'm compromising, aren't I? Like if I don't judge this behavior as wrong and like hammer down on it, well, then I'm caving. I'm not, I'm not being, you know, I, I am compromising. 
And I would say, well, in a way you're right, because the more you condemn, the more you compromise your chance to reach someone for Jesus. That's why Jesus took the approach he took. If I beat down on these sinners, why would they ever come to me for salvation? They're going to go the other way. So it's, it's not always easy, but it can be done. It's consistent with the model of Jesus. One thing, though, before we read this last verse and then we close, is consistency does not equal perfection. So in our pursuit to not, to not give in, to not compromise, sometimes we are going to lose that battle, okay? We're not sinless. We're not perfect. In our effort to not condemn others, sometimes we are not going to get that right. We're going to come down too harshly on someone. We are going to have a judgmental attitude toward people at times. It's not perfection, okay? Consistency is I'm making the effort to try to get this thing right. And with the Holy Spirit's help, he's going to give me the strength to do that, to make it possible in my life. So verse 17, the very end of this message, really reveals how we can be consistent and why we should be consistent. So let's, let's read it real quick. Uh, Revelation 2.17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Again, we're looking at how we can be consistent and why we should be consistent. There's three things he lists here in this last verse I want to look at for just a second. First, he talks about a white stone will be given to people who conquer. So in an ancient culture, a white stone meant several things, but two things that really relate to this passage specifically. The first thing is, in a jury trial or a trial with a judge, at the end of the trial, they're going to decide your fate with either a dark-colored stone or a white stone. So the dark stone means you're guilty, you're going to be condemned. The white stone means you're acquitted. You're, you're innocent of this crime. So Jesus says, to, if you can do this, guess what? You're acquitted. So then, because we can mess up, never mind, I'm not, never mind, I'm not going to say it. Good job, Stephen, you did it. Um, so acquittal in this trial. So basically what this means is, I now give the grace to others that I've been shown. So I'm like, hey, I've got this white stone. That means I'm, I, was, I know I'm guilty, but God has saved me, and now I'm innocent in his sight. Hey, I want that to be the reality for everybody else, so I'm going to extend the grace that I've been shown. The second thing, similarly, that the, a white stone meant in ancient cultures is, if you were invited to a specific feast or party or festival, the invitation was usually a small white stone. So what Jesus is saying here to John culturally is, hey, if you can overcome, if you can withstand the compromise and the condemnation, uh, and you can do this thing, guess what? You get admittance into the greatest feast and party you've ever heard of. And they talk about it later in Revelation. So again, if I want, I want others to ex have this invitation to them as well. I want to be part of the invitation process, honestly. I want my life to be, hey, if you want this life you know, of faith and grace and forgiveness like I've experienced that I don't deserve either, hey, I want to help you find that. Well, I can't do that if I compromise, and I can't do that if I condemn. But if I can be consistent, that white stone that I've been given, can, I can help invite others and help them find their way to God as well. So then he says, on this white stone is written a new name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. What that means is um, we, are now, we now belong to Jesus. We are sealed. And when you look at it, the church is described elsewhere as the bride of Christ. 
Traditionally, the bride will take the last name of the groom. And so when Jesus, through John, says, hey, on this stone is a new name, what does that mean? Again, I now belong to Jesus. The salvation is sealed. I have a new identity. So how can I be consistent in my faith? Well, because I can live from that new identity. I can extend grace that previously I would not have. I can extend love that previously I would have withheld. I can live a life of consistency that otherwise I would not have, but now I belong to Jesus, I am his, and I live from that identity. Then the third thing as we wrap it up for real this time that he mentions in this last verse is he will give hidden manna to those that overcome. Well, first of all, let's talk about manna. In Exodus 16, again, Israel's traveling through the wilderness. They're going to starve to death because there's really not a lot of food in the desert. Uh, And so God provides every night this food that falls from the sky on the ground. It's called manna. Manna in Hebrew means, what is it? That's that's what that means. Because they would come out and say, well, what is it? It tastes delicious. It provides all the nutrients that I need. It's great, but what is it? So it's manna. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to provide everything you need to be consistent in your faith. So what he says to Pergamum is, Basically, hey, I know that you're suffering. I know that you're torn. I know that some of you are compromising. I know some of you might be condemning others. He said, hey, I can provide a way even through suffering, even through some of you have been martyred. I will provide everything you need to make it. And he says the same thing to us. He provides provision for us even through suffering. He provides strength so we don't compromise. And he provides wisdom and compassion so we don't condemn. In any situation that you're tempted to either cave on your faith, compromise on your faith, or condemn through your faith, Jesus will provide you the tools that you need to be consistent. He will. So we as a church and as Christ followers can live consistently. We can live this life of faith and obedience. We can live a life of grace and love. And that then is really the first part of this 2020 vision. This is how we can have clear vision, perfect vision for our church and for our lives as we are consistent. I'm not going to compromise my faith, but I'm not going to condemn. I'm just going to live my life of faith as as close to Jesus as I can and live it as good as I can to others outside the faith so they will want in on the action. They'll want in on this vision that I have, that I experience because I'm living it out consistently.